Part 2 of On Propositions, What They Are and How They Mean, by Bertrand Russell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Landon D.C. Elkind at the University of Iowa in Coralville, Iowa. Section 3, Propositions and Belief. In regard to belief, there are three elements to be considered, namely, 1. The content which is believed, 2. The relation of the content to its objective, that is, to the fact which makes it true or false, 3. The element which is belief, as opposed to consideration of the same content, or doubt concerning it, or desire for it, and so on. The second of these questions I propose to postpone until the next section. For the present, therefore, we are not concerned with the question, what makes a belief true or false, though it is important to remember that the property of being true or false is what specially characterizes beliefs. The other two questions we will consider in this section. 1. The Content of a Belief the view to be taken on this question depends, to some extent, upon the view we take of ideas or presentations. We have here a great variety of theories urged by different authors. Many analytic psychologists, Meinong for example, distinguish three elements in a presentation, namely the act or subject, the content, and the object. Realists such as Dr. Moore and myself have been in the habit of rejecting the content while retaining the act and the object. American realists, on the other hand, have rejected both the act and the content and have kept only the object, while idealists, in effect if not in words, have rejected the object and kept the content. Is there any way of deciding amid this bewildering variety of hypotheses? I have to confess that the theory which analyzes a presentation into act and object no longer satisfies me. The act or subject is schematically convenient but not empirically discoverable. It seems to serve the same sort of purpose as is served by points and instants, by numbers and particles, and the rest of the apparatus of mathematics. All these things have to be constructed, not postulated. They are not of the stuff of the world, but assemblages which it is convenient to be able to designate as if they were single things. The same seems to be true of the subject, and I am at a loss to discover any actual phenomenon which could be called an act and could be regarded as a constituent of a presentation. The logical analogies which have led me to this conclusion have been reinforced by the arguments of James and the American realists. It seems to me imperative, therefore, to construct a theory of presentation and belief which makes no use of the subject or of an act as a constituent of a presentation. Not that it is certain that there is no such thing as a subject, any more than it is certain that there are no points and instants. Such things may exist, but we have no reason to suppose that they do and therefore our theories ought to avoid assuming either that they exist or that they do not exist. The practical effect of this is the same as if we assumed that they did not exist, but the theoretical attitude is different. 
The first effect of the rejection of the subject is to render necessary a less relational theory of mental occurrences. Brentano's view, for example, that mental phenomena are characterized by objective reference, cannot be accepted in its obvious sense. A sensation in particular can no longer be regarded as a relation of a subject to a sense datum. Accordingly, the distinction between sensation and sense datum lapses, and it becomes impossible to regard a sensation as in any sense cognitive. Per contra, a sensation becomes equally part of the subject matter of physics and of psychology. It is simultaneously part of the mind of the person who has the sensation and part of the body which is perceived by means of the sensation. Footnote. Assuming the theory of bodies developed in my knowledge of the external world. End of footnote. This topic demands amplification, but not here, since it is not very relevant to our present theme. Apart from sensations, presentations appear, as a matter of observation, to be composed of images. Images, in accordance with what has just been said, are not to be regarded as relational in their own nature. Nevertheless, at least in the case of memory images, they are felt to point beyond themselves to something which they mean. We have already dealt with the meaning of images as far as was possible without introducing belief. But it is clear that, when we remember by means of images, the images are accompanied by a belief, a belief which may be expressed, though with undue explicitness, by saying that they are felt to be copies of something that existed previously. And without memory, images could hardly acquire meaning. Thus, the analysis of belief is essential even to a full account of the meaning of words and images, for the meaning of words, we found, depends on that of images, which in turn depends on memory, which is itself a form of belief. We have thus, so far, two sorts of mental stuff, namely, a. sensations, which are also physical, and b. images, which are purely mental. Sensations do not mean, but images often do, through the medium of belief. The theory of belief which I formerly advocated, namely that it consisted in a multiple relation of the subject to the objects constituting the objective, that is, the fact that makes the belief true or false, is rendered impossible by the rejection of the subject. The constituents of the belief cannot, when the subject is rejected, be the same as the constituents of its objective. This has both advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantages are those resulting from the gulf between the content and the objective, which seem to make it doubtful in what sense we can be said to know the objective. Footnote. An important part of knowing will consist in the fact that, by means of ideas, we are able to act in a way which is appropriate to an absent object and are not dependent upon the stimulus of present sensation. I have not developed this order of ideas in the present paper, but I do not wish to minimize its importance. End of footnote. The advantages are those derived from the rehabilitation of the content, making it possible to admit propositions as actual complex occurrences, and doing away with the difficulty of answering the question, what do we believe when we believe falsely? 
The theory I wish to advocate, however, is not to be recommended by these advantages or rejected on account of these disadvantages. It is presented for acceptance on the ground that it accords with what can be empirically observed and that it rejects everything mythological or merely schematic. Whether it is epistemologically convenient or inconvenient is a question which has no bearing upon its truth or falsehood, and which I do not propose to consider further. Are sensations and images suitably related a sufficient stuff out of which to compose beliefs? I think they are, but this question has to be asked twice over, once as regards the content, that is, what is believed, and then again as regards the believing. For the present, we are concerned with the content. That what is believed must always be the sort of thing which we express by a proposition is a view which I am not concerned either to assert or to deny. It may be that a single simple image may be believed. For our purposes, however, the important beliefs, even if they be not the only ones, are those which, if rendered into explicit words, take the form of a proposition. That is, that A is B, or that X has the relation R to Y, or that all men are mortal, or that something like this existed before, or any other such sentence. But the psychological classification of the contents of beliefs is very different from the logical classification, and at present it is psychological questions that concern us. Psychologically, some of the simplest beliefs that occur seem to be among memories and expectations. When you recall some recent event, you are believing something. When you go to a familiar place, you may be expecting to find things much as usual. You may have an image of your host saying, how do you do? And you may believe that this will happen. In such cases, the belief is probably not put into words. But if it were, it would take the form of a proposition. For the present, I shall define a proposition as the content of a belief, except when, if ever, the content is simple. But since we have not yet defined belief, this definition cannot be regarded as yet as a very valuable one. The content of a belief may consist only of words, but if it does, this is a telescoped process. The primary phenomenon of belief consists of belief in images, of which perhaps memory is the most elementary example. But, it may be urged, a memory belief does not consist only of the memory image together with bare believing, it is clear that the images may be the same for a memory and an expectation, which are nevertheless different beliefs. I incline to the view that the difference in this case is not in the content of what is believed, but in the believing. Believing seems to be a generic term covering different kinds of occurrences, of which memory and expectation are two. If this is so, difference of tense in its psychologically earliest form is no part of what is believed, but only of the way of believing it. The putting of the tense into the content is a result of later reflection. We may accordingly continue to regard images as giving the whole content of what is believed, when this is not expressed in words. 
I shall distinguish a proposition expressed in words as a word proposition and one consisting of images as an image proposition. As a general rule, a word proposition means an image proposition. This is the case with false propositions as well as with true ones, since image propositions are as capable of falsehood as word propositions. Footnote. There are, however, limitations of parallelism due to the fact that words often express also what belongs to the nature of the believing, as well as what belongs to the content. We have just had an instance of this in the case of tense. Another will be considered later as regards negation. End of footnote. I shall not speak of the fact which makes a proposition true or false as its meaning, because this usage would be confusing in the case of falsehood. I shall speak of the relation of the proposition to the fact which makes it true or false as its objective reference, or simply its reference. But this will not occupy us till the next section. The correspondence of word propositions and image propositions is, as a rule, by no means exact or simple. A form of words, unless artificially constructed, usually expresses not only the content of a proposition, but also what may be called a propositional attitude, memory, expectation, desire, and so on. These attitudes do not form part of the proposition, that is, of the content of what is believed when we believe, or desired when we desire. Let us illustrate the content of a belief by an example. Suppose I am believing, but not in words, that it will rain. What is happening? 1. Images, say, of the visual appearance of rain, the feeling of wetness, the pattern of drops, interrelated roughly, as the sensations would be if it were raining. That is, there is a complex fact composed of images having a structure analogous to that of the objective fact which would make the belief true. 2. There is expectation, that is, the form of belief which refers to the future. We shall examine this shortly. 3. There is a relation between 1 and 2, making us say that 1 is what is expected. This relation also demands investigation. The most important thing about a proposition is that, whether it consists of images or of words, it is, whenever it occurs, an actual fact, having a certain analogy of structure, to be further investigated, with the fact which makes it true or false. A word proposition, apart from niceties, means the corresponding image proposition, and an image proposition has an objective reference dependent upon the meanings of its constituent images. 2. Believing we come now to the question what actually constitutes believing, as opposed to the question of the content believed. Quote, Everyone, says William James, knows the difference between imagining a thing and believing in its existence, between supposing a proposition and acquiescing in its truth. In its inner nature, belief, or the sense of reality, is a sort of feeling more allied to the emotions than to anything else. End of quote. Footnote, Psychology, Chapter 21, Volume 2, page 283, James's Italics, End of Footnote. 
In the main, this view seems inevitable. When we believe a proposition, we have a certain feeling which is related to the content of the proposition in the way described as believing that proposition. But I think various different feelings are collected together under the one word belief, and that there is not any one feeling which preeminently is belief. Before we can begin the analysis of belief, however, it is necessary to consider a theory which, whether explicitly advocated or not, seems implicit in pragmatism and capable, if true, of affording a strong argument in favor of that philosophy. According to this theory, for which I cannot make any author responsible, there is no single occurrence which can be described as believing a proposition, but belief simply consists in causal efficacy. Some ideas move us to action, others do not. Those that do so move us are said to be believed. A behaviorist who denies images will have to go even further and deny image propositions altogether. For him, I suppose, a belief will be, like a force in physics, an imagined fictitious cause of a series of actions. An animal desiring A, in whatever may be the behavioristic sense of desire, proceeds to try to realize B. We then say that the animal believes that B is a means to A. This is merely a way of collecting together a certain set of acts. It does not represent any single occurrence in the animal. But this view, whatever may be said in its favor, where animals are concerned, is condemned as regards human beings by the admission of images. These being admitted, it becomes impossible to deny that image propositions occur in people, and it is clear that belief has specially to do with propositions, given that propositions occur. And, this being admitted, we cannot make the differentia between a proposition believed and a proposition merely considered consist only in the presence or absence of causal efficacy. If we adhere to the maxim, same cause, same effect, we must hold that, if a proposition believed has different effects from those of the same proposition merely considered, there must be some intrinsic difference between believing and considering. The fact that believing moves us as considering does not is evidence of some intrinsic difference between the two phenomena, even when the proposition concerned is the same in both cases. Footnote. Confer Brentano, Psychologie vom Empirischen Standpunkte, Leipzig, 1874, page 268, criticizing Bain, the emotions, and the will. End of footnote. This objection seems fatal to the causal efficacy view as above stated, though I think some things that are true are suggested by the view. It seems to me that there are various feelings that may attach to a proposition, any one of which constitutes belief. Of these I would instance memory, expectation, and bare non-temporal assent. Whether there are others I do not know. Memory requires for its truth that the objective of the proposition should be in the past, expectation that it should be in the future, while bare assent does not necessitate any special time relation of the belief to the objective. Possibly disjunctions and implications 
may involve other kinds of belief feelings. The chief importance of these different feelings, from our point of view, lies in the difficulty they create in translating the phenomena of belief into words. Tense puts the time relation, apparently, into the content of what is believed, whereas, if the above theory is correct, tense is primarily embodied in the nature of the belief feeling. However this may be, we can simplify our discussion by confining ourselves to bare assent, since it is undoubtedly possible to assent to a proposition concerning the past or the future, as opposed to remembering or expecting it. When a belief not expressed in words is occurring in a person and is constituted by the feeling of assent, what is actually happening, if we are right, is as follows. A. We have a proposition consisting of interrelated images and possibly partly of sensations. B. We have the feeling of assent. C. We have a relation actually subsisting between the feeling of assent and the proposition, such as is expressed by saying that that is the proposition assented to. For other forms of belief, we have only to substitute other feelings in place of assent. It might be urged, as against the above theory, that belief is not a positive phenomenon, though doubt and disbelief are so. It might be contended that what we call belief involves only the existence of the appropriate images, which will have the effects that are characteristic of belief unless some other simultaneous force operates against them. It is possible to develop a behavioristic logic, starting with the definition that two propositions are logically incompatible when they prompt bodily movements which are physically incompatible. For example, if one were a fish, one could not at the same time believe the two propositions, this worm is good to eat, and this worm is on a hook. For beliefs, in this view, would be embodied in behavior, the one belief in eating the worm, the other in avoiding it, always assuming, as behaviorists invariably do, that the fish in question is not tired of life. Without going so far as this, we might nevertheless agree with the passage from James, local citation, page 288, quotes, inaccurately, from Spinoza. Quote, Let us conceive a boy imagining to himself a horse, and taking note of nothing else. As this imagination involves the existence of the horse, and the boy has no perception which annuls its existence, James's italics, he will necessarily contemplate the horse as present, nor will he be able to doubt of its existence, however little certain of it he may be. I deny that a man, in so far as he imagines, percipit, affirms nothing. For what is it to imagine a winged horse but to affirm that the horse, that horse namely, has wings? For if the mind had nothing before it but the winged horse, it would contemplate the same as present would have no cause to doubt of its existence, nor any power of dissenting from its existence, unless the imagination of the winged horse were joined to an idea which contradicted, tolit, its existence. End of quote. Ethics, Book 2, 49, Scolium. 
To this doctrine, James entirely assents, adding in italics, quote, Any object which remains uncontradicted is ipso facto believed and posited as absolute reality. End of quote. Now, if this view is correct, it would seem to follow, though James does not draw this inference, that there is no need of any specific feeling of belief, and that the mere existence of images yields all that is required. The state of mind in which we merely consider a proposition without believing or disbelieving it will then appear as a sophisticated product, the result of some rival force adding to the image proposition a positive feeling which may be called suspense or non-belief, a feeling which may be compared to that of a man about to run a race, waiting for a signal. Such a man, though not moving, is in a very different condition from that of a man quietly at rest. And so the man who is considering a proposition without believing it will be in a state of tension, restraining the natural tendency to act upon the proposition which he would display if nothing interfered. In this view, belief primarily consists merely in the existence of the appropriate images without any counteracting forces. What most recommends the above view, to my mind, is the way in which it accords with mental development. Doubt, suspense of judgment, and disbelief all seem later and more complex than a wholly unreflecting assent. Belief as a positive phenomenon, if it exists, seems to be a product of doubt, a decision after debate, an acceptance not merely of this, but of this rather than that. It is not difficult to suppose that a dog has images, possibly olfactory, of his absent master, or of the rabbit that he dreams of hunting. But it is very difficult to suppose that he can entertain mere imagination images to which no assent is given. When we speak of assent, we mean for the moment merely that influence upon action which might naturally be expected to accompany belief. The influence of hallucinatory images also fits well with this theory. Such images, it would seem, often become gradually more and more vivid, until at last they exclude the contrary images which would prevent them from influencing action. I think it may be conceded that a mere image, without the addition of any positive feeling that could be called belief, is apt to have a certain dynamic power. And in this sense, an uncombated image has the force of a belief. But although this may be true, it does not account for any but the simplest phenomena in the region of belief. It will not, for example, explain either memory or expectation, in both of which, though they differ widely in their effects on action, the image is a sign, something pointing beyond itself to a different event. Nor can it explain the beliefs which do not issue in any proximate action, such as those of mathematics. I conclude, therefore, that there are belief feelings of the same order as those of doubt or desire or disbelief, although phenomena closely analogous to those of belief can be produced by mere uncontradicted images. Instances like that of the boy imagining a winged horse are liable to produce a certain confusion. 
the image of the winged horse of course exists and if the boy took this to be real he would not be in error but images accompanied by belief are normally taken as signs the belief is not in the image but in something else that is indicated or in logical language described by the image this is especially obvious in such a case as memory when we remember an event by means of present images we are not believing in the present existence of the images but in the past existence of something resembling them it is almost impossible to translate what is occurring into words without great distortion the view which i am advocating is that in such a case we have a specific feeling called remembering which has a certain relation to the memory image the memory image constitutes the image proposition but the translation of our belief into words is something like this was not something like this is as it would be an assent not of the nature of memory or expectation and even this translation is hardly accurate for words point not only to images but beyond images to what these mean therefore when we use a word as if it meant the image we need an unnatural duplication of words in order to reach what the image stands for this produces the appearance of unexpected complication leading to an undue lack of plausibility but the whole question of adapting language to psychology after all the ages during which it has been adapted to bad logic is so difficult that i can hardly do more than indicate some of its problems section four truth and falsehood we come now to the question which we left on one side at the beginning of our third section namely what is the relation of the content of a belief to its objective that is to the fact which makes it true or false in an earlier paper before the aristotelian society footnote on the nature of truth proceedings of the aristotelian society 1907 reprinted with some alterations in philosophical essays under the title the monistic theory of truth end of footnote in criticism of mr joachim i have given my reasons for holding that truth consists in correspondence rather than in internal consistency i do not propose to repeat those arguments at present but shall assume without more ado that the truth or falsehood of a belief depends upon its relation to a fact other than itself this fact i call its objective in so doing i am not following exactly the same usage as meinong who holds that there are false objectives as well as true ones and who therefore does not identify his objectives with the facts that make propositions true or false i cannot call the fact the meaning of the proposition since that is confusing when the proposition is false if on a fine day i say it is raining we cannot say that the meaning of my statement is the fact that the sun is shining nor can i use the word denotation since that assimilates propositions too much to names and descriptions but i shall say that a proposition refers to its objective thus when we are concerned with image propositions referring to takes the place of meaning word propositions on the other hand 
while also referring to objectives, may in simple cases be legitimately spoken of as meaning image propositions. According to the theory of propositions suggested in the previous section, it would be a mistake to regard truth and falsehood as relations of the ideal to the real. Propositions are facts in exactly the same sense in which their objectives are facts. The relation of a proposition to its objective is not a relation of something imagined to something actual. It is a relation between two equally solid and equally actual facts. One of these, the proposition, is composed of images with a possible admixture of sensations. The other may be composed of anything. Whether an image which is too simple to be called a proposition can be in any sense true or false is a question which I shall not discuss. It is propositions and their truth and falsehood that I am concerned with. Whether there is any other truth or falsehood may be left an open question. There are two different questions in regard to truth and falsehood, of which one may be called formal, the other material. The formal question concerns the relations between the form of a proposition and the form of its objective in the respective cases of truth and falsehood. The material question, which has been specially emphasized by pragmatists, concerns the nature of the effects of true and false beliefs, respectively. Insofar as people wish to believe truly, which I am told is sometimes the case, it is because true beliefs are supposed to be, as a rule, a better means to the realization of desires than false ones. Unless the material question is remembered, the schematic treatment of the formal question may appear very barren and scholastic. Nevertheless, it is to the formal question that I propose to address myself. The simplest possible schema of correspondence between proposition and objective is afforded by such cases as visual sensory images. I call up a picture of a room that I know, and in my picture the window is to the left of the fire. I give to this picture that sort of belief which we call memory. When the room was present to sense, the window was, in fact, to the left of the fire. In this case, I have a complex image, which we may analyze for our purposes, into a, the image of the window, b, the image of the fire, c, the relation that a is to the left of b. The objective consists of the window and the fire with the very same relation between them. In such a case, the objective of a proposition consists of the meanings of its constituent images, related or not related, as the case may be, by the same relation as that which holds between the constituent images in the proposition. When the objective is that the same relation holds, the proposition is true. When the objective is that the same relation does not hold, the proposition is false. According to what was said about negative facts in section 1, there is always one or other of these two possible objectives, and the proposition is therefore always either true or false. But such idyllic simplicity of correspondence is rare. 
it is already absent in the word propositions, which mean such simple visual image propositions. In the phrase, A is to the left of B, even if we treat is to the left of as one word, we have a fact consisting of three terms with a triadic relation, not two terms with a dyadic relation. The linguistic symbol for a relation is not itself a relation, but a term as solid as the other words of the sentence. Language might have been so constructed that this should not have been always the case. A few specially important relations might have been symbolized by relations between words. For instance, AB might have meant A is to the left of B. It might have been the practice that pronouncing A on a high note and B on a low note meant that A was B's social superior. But the practical possibilities of this method of symbolizing relations are obviously very limited, and in actual language relations are symbolized by words, verbs and prepositions chiefly, or parts of words, inflections. Footnote. This is not wholly true of very primitive languages but they are so vague and ambiguous that often they cannot be said to have any way of expressing one relation rather than a number of others that might equally be meant by the phrase which is used. End of footnote. Hence, the linguistic statement of a fact is a more complex fact than that which it asserts, and the correspondence of a word proposition with its objective is never so simple as the simplest correspondence in the case of image propositions. Again, the case of negative facts and negative propositions is full of complexities. Propositions, whether of images or words, are always themselves positive facts. In the case of word propositions, there are different positive facts, phrases, of which one is true when the objective is positive, the other when it is negative. The phrases A loves B and A does not love B are both themselves positive facts. We cannot symbolize the assertion that A does not love B by merely having the words A and B without the word loves between them. Since we cannot practically distinguish the fact that the word loves does not occur between them from the fact that, for example, the word hates does not occur between them. Words and phrases being intended for communication have to be sensible, and sensible facts are always positive. Thus, there is no identity between the distinction of positive and negative facts and the distinction of positive and negative word propositions. The latter are themselves both positive facts, though differing by the absence or presence of the word not. In the case of image propositions, there is again a lack of parallelism with negative facts, but of a different kind. Not only are image propositions always positive, but there are not even two kinds of positive image propositions as there are of word propositions. There is no not in an image proposition. The not belongs to the feeling, not to the content of the proposition. An image proposition may be believed or disbelieved. These are different feelings towards the same content not the same feeling towards different contents. There is no way of visualizing A not to the left of B. When we attempt it, we find ourselves visualizing 
a to the right of b, or something of the sort. This is one strong reason for the reluctance to admit negative facts. We have thus, as regards the opposition of positive and negative, the following different sorts of duality. 1. Positive and negative facts. 2. Image propositions, which may be believed or disbelieved, but do not allow any duality of content corresponding to positive and negative facts. 3. Word propositions, which are always positive facts, but are of two kinds, one verified by a positive objective, the other by a negative objective. Thus, the simpler kinds of parallelism between proposition and fact are only to be looked for in the case of positive facts and propositions. Where the fact is negative, the correspondence necessarily becomes more complicated. It is partly the failure to realize the lack of parallelism between negative facts and negative word propositions that has made a correct theory of negative facts so difficult either to discover or to believe. Let us now return to positive facts and beliefs in image propositions. In the case of special relations, we found that it is possible for the relation of the constituent images to be the same as the relation of the constituents of the objective. In my visualizing of A to the left of B, my image of A is to the left of my image of B. Does this identity of relation as between the image proposition and its objective ever occur except in the case of spatial relations? The case which it is natural to consider next is that of temporal relations. Suppose I believe that A precedes B. Can this belief have for its content an image of A preceding an image of B? At first sight, most people would unhesitatingly reject such an hypothesis. We have been told, so often, that an idea of succession is not a succession of ideas, that we almost automatically regard the apprehension of a sequence as something in which the earlier and later parts of the sequence must be simultaneously presented. It seems rash to challenge a view so generally regarded as unquestionable, and yet I cannot resist grave doubts as to its truth. Of course it is a fact that we often have successive images without the belief that their prototypes have the same time order, but that proves nothing, since in any case belief is something which has to be added to an image proposition. Is it certain that we cannot have an image of A followed by an image of B and proceed to believe this sequence? And cannot this be the belief that A precedes B? I see no reason why this should not be the case. When, for example, I imagine a person speaking a sentence, or when, for that matter, I actually hear him speak it, there does not seem, as a question of empirical fact, to be any moment at which the whole sentence is present to imagination or sense, and yet, in whatever may be the usual meaning of the phrase, I can apprehend the sentence as a whole. I hear the words in order, but never the whole sentence at once, yet I apprehend the sentence as a whole, in the sense that it produces upon me the intended effect, whatever that may be. You come to me and say, your roof has fallen in, and the rain is pouring down into the rooms, ruining all your furniture. I understand what you say, since I express consternation, 
ring up the landlord, write to the insurance company, and order a van to remove my belongings. Yet it by no means follows that the whole sentence was imaginatively present to me at any one moment. My belief in your statement is a causal unit, and it is therefore supposed to be a unitary occurrence. But in mental affairs, the causal unit may well be several events at different times. This is part of Bergson's point about repetition. It is also suggested by the law of habit. It may well turn out to be one of the fundamental differences between physics and psychology. Thus, there seems no good reason why, when we believe in a succession, there should be any one moment within which the whole content of the belief is existing. The belief in a succession may quite well be itself a succession. If so, temporal relations, like spatial ones, allow the simplest type of correspondence, in which the relation in the image proposition is identical with that in the objective. But I only wish to suggest this view as a possible one. I do not feel prepared to say with any conviction that it is in fact true. The correspondence of propositions and fact grows increasingly complicated as we pass to more complicated types of propositions, existence propositions, general propositions, disjunctive and hypothetical propositions, and so on. The subject is important and capable, I believe, of throwing much new light on logic, but I shall not pursue it here. The general nature of the formal correspondence which makes truth or falsehood can be seen from the simplest case, the case of a dyadic relation which is the same in fact and in the image proposition. You have an image of A which is to the left of your image of B. This occurrence is an image proposition. If A is to the left of B, the proposition is true. If A is not to the left of B, it is false. The phrase A is to the left of B means the image proposition, and is true when this is true, false when this is false. On the other hand, the phrase A is not to the left of B is true when the image proposition is false, and false when it is true. Thus, for this simplest case, we have obtained a formal definition of truth and falsehood both for image propositions and for word propositions. It is easy to see that the same kind of definition can be extended to more complicated cases. It will be observed that truth and falsehood, in their formal sense, are primarily properties of propositions rather than of beliefs. Derivatively, we call a belief true when it is belief in a true proposition, and a disbelief true when it is disbelief in a false proposition. But it is to propositions that the primary formal meanings of truth and falsehood apply. But when we come to what gives importance to truth and falsehood, as opposed to what constitutes their formal definition, it is beliefs, not propositions, that are important. Beliefs influence action, and the effects of true beliefs, I am told, are more agreeable than those of false beliefs. The attempt to define truth in this way seems to me a mistake, but so long as we confine ourselves to the formal definition of truth, it is difficult to see 
why anyone should take an interest in it. It is therefore important to remember the connection of beliefs with action. But I do not think either that the pleasant effects of a belief are alone a sufficient verification of it, or that verification can be used to define truth. There are true propositions, for example, about past matters of fact, which cannot be verified. The formal definition of truth by correspondence of a proposition with its objective seems the only one which is theoretically adequate. The further inquiry, whether, if our definition of truth is correct, there is anything that can be known, is one that I cannot now undertake. But if the result of such an inquiry should prove adverse, I should not regard that as affording any theoretical objection to the proposed definition. End of part two, and end of On Propositions, What They Are and How They Mean, by Bertrand Russell.